Hello and welcome to Living the Present Moment with Dr. Joel Ying. Today is Friday, March 29th, 2019. On this podcast series, I interview people of passion and purpose doing interesting things, living the present moment. I'm your host today, Dr. Joel Ying. I'm a physician, educator, storyteller. You can join the mailing list, visit the blog, courses, and calendar at livingthepresentmoment.com. Today's topic, the freedom schools of the civil rights movement during the 1960s. My guest today is Jim Gregory. I first met Jim at the Florida Storytelling Festival in Mount Dora, which is near Orlando. At that time, I just started in storytelling. As a storyteller myself, a few years later, I eventually wrote a historical story that led me to research and tell about Freedom Schools, and I remembered him and his CD. And um, I'm excited today to talk and meet with someone who has a first-person account of that time in history. The Civil Rights Movement in the summer of 1964 looked to Mississippi because it was a state that was one-third black, but less than 7% of the eligible black vote there was registered. And during that time, individual states set their own voter registration laws, and Mississippi had a literacy test. And they required passing this literacy test, which included interpreting a passage of the state constitution and to the satisfaction of the white registrar. Now, this, among other other tactics, uh, had barred and effectively disenfranchised a lot of the black vote. The Freedom Summer Project was started as a voter registration drive, and it began as a drive to teach black Americans how to pass these unfair voter registration tests. The Freedom Schools would open in local black communities in Mississippi, and volunteers were recruited from colleges across the country. Uh, Hundreds and hundreds came, and many of them were white college students. And they came for a two-week orientation at a college campus in Ohio. The students were taught how to live and teach in the black community, and they would teach reading, writing, black history, the political process, among other things. They were also educated on the tenets of nonviolence and, of course, the harsh reality that they might be met with violence. In his CD, The Hanging of Tom Brown, Jim Gregory gives a first-hand account of living through those times. And he tells us how, as a, a white young man, he became involved in the civil rights movement and the freedom schools in Mississippi. Jim, how are you doing out there? I'm doing fine. I've got to apologize for those dogs. I can't get them to hush. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, thank you for having me, Dr. Ian. I appreciate it. How did you end up being born in California with a long line of Eastern Tennessee in your blood? I'm the first member of my family out of 10 generations that wasn't born in the state of Tennessee. But my father was in the uh, United States Navy during World War II. And being born in 1940, my mother was in California uh, with him. And she said that uh, as she was being wheeled into the delivery room, his ship was sailing out of the harbor, headed for Hawaii. And later, uh, the following year, he was on the first ship that was attacked at Pearl Harbor. Uh, But six weeks in after I was born, um, we got smart and packed up and headed back to Tennessee. So we lived with my (laughs) grandparents for uh, the first seven or eight years of my life. When I met you, you were already a storyteller. I was wondering, was it this this project, creating this CD, that why you became a storyteller, or did it begin before that? Oh, no. this uh, I w- I've been telling stories ever since I was a small kid. I, was, I had polio when I was uh, uh, 18 months old, and when I was in school, I couldn't go out and play with kids. And of course, I'd, after having spent time in California, um, I... Uh, I uh, would tell kids about going to the beach and things like that, and it became storytelling, really. And my grandfather took the time when I was in the, in the Iron Lung to teach me to read. So I was, by the time I entered the first grade, I was reading on a seventh grade level. And uh, I frequently told stories that came from books that I had read for the kids and uh, my fellow classmates because they wanted to play and I couldn't. So I sat under the window of the school on our bench and uh, there were kids who wanted to come over and talk so I think that's where I got started 
then as a teacher for 39 years, I found that telling stories for history was one of the best ways to grab the educate, grab the attention of uh, middle school and high school kids. So I started telling stories a long time ago. Wow. But, uh, and mainly historical stories? Uh, well, just whatever happened to come to mind, stories about my family and Mott Eagle and stories about uh, histor- histories and stories that I'd come up with. And I would, I would prepare a history lesson, and frequently I would turn the lesson into a story and add dialogue and things like that and say so-and-so said this to so-and-so and stuff. And um, when you're dealing with people like George Washington and the early founding fathers, it was kind of easy to put together dialogue sometimes for these kids. And it seemed to get their attention, and they enjoyed hearing that kind of stories. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a great way to teach history by telling the stories of history rather than listing dates and events and, you know, that kind of narrative. So uh, I'm great that you made history really come alive for the students. But the thing is, I'll add, I, I, I never told any of these stories that's on the CD in my classroom. Uh, mm. I didn't tell them until after the last member of my team passed away. And uh, I realized I was the only one left. And some of the professional storytellers that I knew convinced me to uh, to put some of these stories together and to uh, put this CD together. And uh, Doug Lipman and Kim Wycamp were two people that were very heavily involved with getting me to tell these stories after having hidden them for 51 years. Wow. I know them well. They're both great storytellers. Well, what was the, you know, it's so rare to meet a first-hand account, you know, someone with a first-hand account of those times and actually have them talk about it. Um, what, what was the first, uh, I guess, stimulus to talk about this? What, what, what brought those stories back to you after 51 years? I uh, was doing a workshop with Doug Lipman in uh, Fort Lauderdale, and there were only 10 of us in the workshop, and he gave us an assignment to tell a personal story. And I had been thinking about Tom uh, Brown and what had happened to him, and and, uh, I decided to, okay, to tell that part of the story. And so I went home and practiced it and made a few notes and that sort of thing. And when I came in the following day and was asked to go ahead and tell my story, I told the portion that's just about Tom Brown. And a couple of the other people there had told stories, and I wasn't first or last, but when I finished telling the story, the entire room was quiet. Nobody said anything. And Doug sat there and looked at me for a good long time, what seemed like minutes, (laughs) although I guess it was only seconds. But he's looking at me, and I thought, oh, Lord, he's going to tear me up. He's going to really tear the story to pieces. He looked up, and he said, Jim, if you ever put a series of those stories together, you call me, and I will fly down here from Massachusetts to hear you. Hmm. And I guess that was the first indication that I needed to work on them. And uh, But I, I thought at the time, no, it, it was too painful. I wasn't going to tell any of these stories there because I lost too many kids. Too, too many of my people that I was friends with and loved very much uh, mm. did not make it out of the South then. And uh, I didn't want to tell those stories because I come from a family where if you uh, lead people into danger, you don't walk away. And... Uh, even though when we when Billy and I walked away, we were both on crutches. We we had, I guess they call it survivor's guilt. But mm. neither one of us ever told the stories. As far as I know, Billy never told any of them. And uh, uh, 
it wasn't until after he passed away from a heart attack that I considered beginning to put the beginning to put the stories together. Hmm. For folks who don't know the main character in your, you know, on the title there, the hanging Tim, uh, sorry, Tom Brown. Um, can can you give us sort of a overview of what what's on your CD? Well, yes, sir. We started out. Um, I think one of the things that really caused me to to leave school. Uh, I was at Tennessee Western College in Athens, Tennessee, and uh, I was singing with the uh, with the choir there, and we were a traveling choir. And uh, Jack Houts was our choir director, and I, when he quit at Wesleyan and went to uh, University of South Florida uh, to uh, uh, actually University Florida Southern University. I'm sorry. He went there to teach, and I just said, if I, if I don't want to sing under anybody else right now. I mean, so um, we decided we wanted to move off campus, my roommate and I, and uh, ended up buying a, uh, a, a old school bus and converting it into a, uh, what you would call today an RV. And we, lived off, we were going to live off campus in it. We had a good friend who ran a who ran a uh, the the cafe uh, the uh, cafe at the school, and we were talking about what we wanted to do. Going to go on a shakedown cruise with it, and that sort of thing. And uh, he heard he overheard us talking, and he was a black guy that ran this uh, this little little college uh, uh, slop shop, <laughs> and. Uh, he was listening to us talk, and he said, why don't you all do something worthwhile? And said, like what? And he said, why don't you hand out some textbooks to some of the black schools around and teach black, black kids to read and write? And that was basically how we got started off. We, uh, we finally finished the, the RV, loaded it down with buses, that was, with books that we collected from... Knoxville and Chattanooga's school system, and then uh, also in, in Athens' uh, school system, we could just collected old, old used books that they were going to throw out. And uh, but I did have a contact with my seventh and eighth grade teacher, who happened to be the author of uh, a bunch of math books, and she had a contact with a publisher, and she was able to get us some new books that we used our. And the, we loaded bus up with these books and all our clothes and some instruments. Both of us played guitar, and we hit the road and started going to stopping off at AME churches and uh, asking where the schools were. And a lot of those black schools were connected with AME churches, so that the teachers were members of the church and. Mm. Um, that was basically how we got started, and we traveled around that way for almost a year and started meeting other people. We met May, who was probably one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. She, she could take your breath away. Well, we met her, and when we were in uh, Miami of Ohio, at the, we met three other kids, Mary and Tim and Matt. And uh, Nick and I, and uh, well, we picked up Billy and George in, in uh, Chattanooga. Uh, they were people that I'd gone to high school with. And uh, so Nick and I were, we went on up to Miami of Ohio finally from the, off the road. And uh, May's father had told us about the gathering there and to, uh, thought it would be a good idea if we went up and learned something, and so we. That was in '63, early in '64, when May's dad told he was a minister in Chicago of an AME church, and uh, he talked us into going up there. And we got there, and we found out that they were preparing this voter registration thing. It wasn't just teaching kids to read and write; it was. Uh, trying to get the voter laws 
change, but also trying to get uh, educate people so they can actually pass the uh, uh, the test that they were giving out, which was virtually impossible at times. But I mean, they, those tests were they, they were really something. You can look them up online; they still have some of those tests online. And a question like, "How many bubbles are in a uh, a bar of soap?" Uh, <laughs> how do you how do you answer a question like that? But then there were other questions like uh, uh, the the person that was giving the test would pick a portion of, of the state's constitution and have the uh, the person taking the test analyze that portion and write it and uh, write down what it meant and all that. Copy it and do it from memory and, and then analyze it. And uh, <clears throat> they were, uh, these tests were just totally unfair. And uh, you'd almost have to have a master's degree to pass the test. But um, that's what we were working with. Wow. So, and we got into a good deal of trouble. <laughs> uh, as you might guess, the, most of the black people that we went to for, at first were uh, were kind of standoffish. They didn't re- they didn't really trust white people coming down to do things like this. And but then we had May with us, and she was oh she could open any any door of any black church that we went to. <laughs> she was she was something else. Uh, hmm. But uh, we talked best we could in the churches and. Tom was our first uh, success story. Uh, wow. And you mentioned a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, people were really impacted by this CD, and I have to say I'm one of them when I first heard the CD, um, and uh, one of the surprises is just how far away we are from the civil rights movement now in time, anyway, and and how much has been forgotten about the 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 violence that happened around this this uh, movement that was you know devoted to nonviolence but also just the price that had been paid by a lot of folks during the civil rights movement. Um, you know, Dr. I've, that- I've, been, I've been looking at this, and, and, and you're right, uh, but I've been thinking that some people evidently today are trying to get it started again. I've never seen so much hate uh, since that time mm-hmm. as I'm seeing today. Uh, mm. people trying to stir up problems between black and white and brown and red. And uh, just some people just don't seem to be happy unless they're, they're causing people to want to, to want to ha- have a civil war or something. And I'm, uh, it's really kind of scary to think that we may have to go back through this all again. Uh, yeah. I, the, the laws have been passed. The laws are there. Uh, in fact, the Civil Rights Law of 1964 didn't do anything except make uh, the uh, amendments to the Constitution make it uh, affect the states. It just it, it didn't give black people any rights they didn't already have. It just clarified that uh, they had the right. Um, so the laws are there, but you can't legislate morality. Uh, we can't do, we can't, we just can't go. It's, it's like, I guess it's a lot like, uh, this global warming thing. You, you just, you know, you're very, you're almost helpless in view of what's going on. Mm. You, you, it's you. You want to help, and and 
You just don't know what you can do. I, it really bothers me today to see what is uh, what's happening around me. Uh, the people that hate each other just because they don't agree politically or they uh, they think that there's got to be a different way of doing things. Um, our country's in the best shape it's been in in a long time, except for the fights between people. And that yeah, bothers um, me. I'm curious, as someone, uh, you know, uh, as a white man growing up in Tennessee, um, oh, and and so many other white students who you. Uh, came to be involved in this movement. What, what was it that attracted so many people during that time to this movement? Well, I don't know that I can answer for anybody except myself. Uh, maybe one or two of the people that was with me. But I, uh, when I graduated from high school, I decided to take a vacation. And I had a motorcycle that uh, I purchased from a friend who had gone over to, uh, he, he was drafted into the military and he didn't know if he was going to come back. So he sold me his motorcycle and uh, I decided I wanted to go down to, to Florida. And on my way back from Florida uh, to Tennessee at the end of about three weeks, uh, I had a beautiful vacation and on the beaches of Pensacola. I was coming through Mobile, Alabama, and I stopped at a, uh, a Walgreens. I think I'm wait a minute. It was well, it was a drugstore. Stopped at a drugstore there, and they had a soda fountain. And I went in to get something to eat, and, and making a long story short, got involved in the civil rights. Uh, I didn't realize what a sit-in was, but some people came in and sat down beside me and. Evidently, because I had done a lot of bodybuilding when I was in school and I was uh, riding a motorcycle and I was dressed as a biker, I guess the police thought that I was there to cause trouble because they came in to break up the, the sit-in and one of the officers walked up behind me and the minister that I was sitting beside told me later that he pulled out his nightstick and swung at my head without saying anything, and I had turned, and he caught me on the shoulder and fractured my collarbone, huh. and that knocked me out, and I woke up in jail. <laughs> and one thing led to another. That's the first time I'd ever spent a lot, you know, a whole lot of time talking with someone who was black, uh, although I, one of my friends, when I lived in California, when I was in about the, uh, I was on the third grade or so, uh, was black, um, one of my best friends out there. And my mother and father always had uh, a uh, part-time maid. And, uh, but I, I really had not been involved with, with that many black people until that time. The school I went to, Chattanooga City High School, was, uh, of course, segregated. Uh, I did know some kids who used to go to football games at Howard High, which was the black high school in Chattanooga. Used to go watch their football games every once in a while. But I didn't, had not really gotten involved with black people. Uh, I lived in the segregated South, and I kind of took it at, at the time, as, and when I was in high school, as this was the way it was supposed to be. Mm. We had separate water fountains. We had uh, the black people. I was kind of envious uh, of the uh, things that the black folks had. Sometimes they, they got to sit in the balcony at the movie theater. <laughs> and, and we had to sit down on the floor, you know, the, the main floor. And you could always have more fun with your girl if you were in the balcony. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, then they got to sit in the back of the bus. And I didn't really realize that they, they had to sit in the back of the bus. And um, mm -hmm. I was 
when I woke up in jail, uh, that the minister that I'd been talking to at the at the soda fountain had uh, he spent the rest of the night talking to me about how things were not the way I thought they were, and uh, that I think kind of set me on the track. Hmm. Wow. So it was really your personal experience getting exposed to the stories of um, what it what it was really like for a black Americans. Right. He, he would talk about traveling across the country and uh, not being able to stay in a motel or eat at a restaurant because he was black. And they would be all the places that he would try, that he would need to stop would be white only. And we talked about the water fountains and the differences. You know, white folks had the water fountains that were chill, had chilled water, and the water fountains that would say colored only were uh, basically just a turned upside down uh, faucet over a sink, and frequently connected with a, with a garden hose. To an outlet, and uh, we talked about bus stations and how, how people, the difference in a, in a waiting room and a bus stations and things like that. And it just, we spent the entire night talking about these things, and I, I didn't know about them. I, I really hadn't ever, hadn't really connected it, hmm. but he gave me a lesson real fast. <laughs> um, I think that started me on the on the route. I oh. figured later that I kind of had to do something to uh, to make some changes. Hmm. And what was the movement like during that time? Was it pretty visible? Uh, how? Oh yeah, yes, it was yeah. very visible. You, I think while that, uh, especially Billy and I. Uh, we were both from the south. Um, everybody else was basically from the north. But uh, Billy and I uh, kind of walked the walk and talked the talk. We we knew how to talk with an accent and things like that. And we were kind of accepted by a lot of the white folks until they got to know us. But uh, coming by the time we got into uh, south. Mississippi, about around Macomb, Mississippi, we we were doing well until we un, until we got into that area. And uh, people, once we started being noticed, you know, we set up a school and a, and a church there, and started teaching people. Tom was our first real uh, student, uh, other than some kids that wanted help with homework. Um, once we, once people, the white folks learned what we were doing, they started attacking the church, and, and uh, Tim and, and Matt disappeared off the street uh, there, and we don't know what happened to them. Uh, they mm. never appeared again. Uh, oh we lost them rather quickly. They were two kids that were that really loved working with the elementary school kids, and you know the younger kids, and they would go to people's homes of kids that were um, that had missed school or something like that and they would tutor kids at home to try to help them catch back up and um, they were coming oh. back to the church one night and they just they just disappeared they they were in their late teens well how old were you at the like, time I was uh, early 20s. Uh, this was 19, in 1964. I was 24. Oh, um, but at the time we started out, I was I think I was 22 when we started doing this. Hmm. And uh, May was a little older than me because she was all, had already been to graduate school. But uh, the rest of us were about the same age. I, actually, Nick was a year older than me because he... He had graduated from uh, Tennessee Wesleyan when we pulled out, and uh, I was had finished my junior year and didn't want to go back. 
for the senior year. And uh, we got, that's when we really got started. Wow. Now, did you did you know how dangerous it was when you were getting started? Uh, we'd heard stories. We, when we got to uh, Miami of Ohio, uh, they would take us out onto the uh, fields and they would, we would, we would the, the, the people who were running the program would attack us, you know, as if we, you know, scream at us and, and call us all kinds of names and everything, trying to get us uh, not to go. They didn't want white people going down, basically. They were mm-hmm. not real thrilled that there were so, so many white students that wanted to, to be a part of what was going on, but they talked to them and uh, told them that we had been working with black schools for about a year, and I think that that finally did it. Finally, let talked them into letting us go. But there wasn't any way we weren't going. This was we were going to do something anyhow. We just wanted to make sure we were in the in the where we could connect, contact people, and get help if we needed it. Mm. But. Uh, how many students do you think came through there, or I guess young people came through that? I don't. Ohio. I don't really know how many were in that were there at Miami of Ohio, but there was. I know that when we went into the auditorium uh, to hear Dr. Moses speak, and uh, for some of the worship services that we had there, and then some of the information services that were there. Uh, the place was packed. So mm. there, there were, there had to been close to three hundred kids that were okay. that were there, two three hundred at least. Wow! Well, at that moment, yeah, they were there a couple of weeks. Yeah, several weeks. Oh. They were they were not to leave until Friday. We left on Thursday. Uh, we just decided that we, we were going further south. Nobody wanted to go as far south as we went. Uh, people wanted to stay closer to the Tennessee line, I think. But we had, uh, May's dad had uh, given us a contact just a little outside of Lacombe and a, a man there that was pastor of a church and he was expecting us, and so we we left a, a day early so we could get there and start mm. setting up in his church. Wow. It, was a, it was a beautiful few weeks while we were there. We worked really hard and got to know the people. We had we played most of us played some instruments and and. Uh, we would join in with their singing, and I'll tell you what, uh, the music that you get in a in an AME church is not like you get much of anywhere else. It's a, it's a uh, really upbeat, great kind of music uh, that you work with and sing in these churches. Wow. Yeah. And of course, the the ladies were, the ladies all, every time we had dinner in one of these churches, they'd, uh, there would be a spread. It would be kind of food I grew up on, you know, good old Southern comfort food. Mm. Um, it was, once they accepted us, we were, we really got along well. Okay, so being from the South, it, it was really easy to integrate once. Yeah, I think that Billy, once like I said, I think Billy and I could, you know, walk to walk and talk to talk. And uh, people accepted us a little more because we did. Although a lot of them were, were you know, a lot of them didn't. There were a lot of people who thought, you know, what are you Southern boys doing out here? trying to do something like this, it, uh, it was difficult. Mm. But 
But uh, because the minister accepted us, and like I said, May was really something that she kept kept us on the right on the right way. Uh, she was really she got it a lot, and she got us into places that we probably never would have gotten into before if it hadn't been for her. Hmm. You also mentioned the music at that time. I was talking to someone at a workshop I went to, and she taught us about the the music of the civil rights movement and that it was a really powerful part of that movement. And her it whole was. Wow, her whole experience was that today's movements have really lost the power of of how music can bring people together. What, what did you? What was your experience of the music at that time, as far as the movement? Well, uh, we, uh, like I said, Mary could play just about any instrument that had strings on it. <laughs> and uh, we, I, I str- I'm not a very good guitar player. I still am not to this day. Um, I'm, a, I'm a strummer, <laughs> not a picker. Uh, but uh, Nick could pick. And uh, Mary, of course, when she could pick up a mandolin or, or a uh, anything from a ukulele up she could play it Uh, she was did quite well on piano so a lot of the people there taught us some of these old spirituals that we got involved with and uh, Mary would play them and we would sing and play and we uh, we did we had a lot of fun with it The, the the music, it, it, just think of a song like We Shall Overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was teaching in, in middle school and high school, I used to start classes frequently by having the students stand up because most of my kids were, were black. I taught in inner city schools. And uh, I would have my entire class stand up and we would repeat, I am somebody. I am somebody. We would repeat that over and over until uh, till the kids were basically screaming it. Mm-hmm. And I think We Shall Overcome was that same kind of thing. Uh, mm. oh. What did you what did you see from the students as they you know were able to like you said, in that crescendo of I am somebody. Oh, they would get excited. Uh, somebody's trying to call me now. I'll call them back later. <laughs> okay. Uh, no problem. I just would build, try to, I would do anything in a class to try to build excitement, to get things going. Uh, when I was teaching middle school, I was teaching something called a SARP programs. This stands for Student at Risk Program. And uh, I had actually been instrumental in helping put the program together. We had four basic, you know, core teachers, um, English, science, math, and social studies. And each teacher was, there was a team of us, and we would, we all worked with the same kids. And a lot of our kids were, you know, one step out of jail, basically. Mm. And uh, most of them were that way. I don't want to get into, don't want to get into a lot of trouble here. But most of, a lot of the kids reached the point in school where they felt like they, the world owed them a living. They didn't really have to do anything except come and sit in class, and they could pass. Um, school systems have lowered their expectations just tremendously, and I, I've been out of teaching now for almost 15 years, and uh, uh, I could see it going down when I was when I was teaching. And hmm. I wanted the kids to get some excitement back in their lives to be excited about being in school. Uh, if you could incite kids about being in school, they, 
they learn better. They learn more. Uh, but you got to open the minds. And I guess teachers today have to kind of be, uh, I don't know, maybe being a storyteller in class was uh, was good, was a good thing to, to help move them along. But uh, teachers today have to entertain as well as try to teach. And uh, if you if you don't have that ability to act, to hold their attention, um, how are you going to teach them? Mm. You know. But I'm watching it. Uh, schools today say that history doesn't make any difference anymore. Social studies is almost uh, out of out of schools now. Uh, I hear a lot of schools. Oh, we don't teach that anymore. We don't teach. Uh, grammar. They don't teach a lot of math things that they used to teach. They used to teach uh, times tables and things like that. They don't teach that anymore because now they let kids use calculators. Uh, mm. What are they going to do when they don't have any calculators? Mm. <laughs> I don't know, but they, and then but they're saying now that uh, if you look around and you and you see what's going on on college campuses and places like that today with people trying to tear down statues and things just because they these people were from a different time and a different place and their uh, their way of life was different and people today don't approve of their way of life so they want to tear down history and destroy you can't destroy history uh, mm. for people you know I live part of history. I want people to understand what it took to to survive through that and what it took to 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 bring people together. And I think that's what really tears me up so much today is watching people in our government uh in our uh in our media just seem like what all they want to do is so hate. Hmm. Um, the young man in Chicago that, that faked uh, an attack on himself uh, and then tried to blame it on white people. <laughs> um, to me, that that's just, that really scares me. I'm really, I'm really frightened about what I see going on today. I, um, unless we can come together, we're going to end up. Well, more people get killed in in Chicago but, uh, on on a regular basis than we lost in uh, Afghanistan, uh, places like that. Uh, we're losing mm. these people really rapidly. People are getting killed on a regular basis, and that's not good. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a bad thing, a bad area to grow up and to have that mm. involved with. I, I don't know how how to say it, but things are going from bad to worse in a lot of areas. Yeah, we live in serious times. But what what do you think? You know, as as you've brought history back alive through the CD and through telling your own stories and encouraging others to tell stories, what do you think are the important lessons of that time to bring forward? That you know, what was the movement about, and what should we not forget? I don't really know how to answer that. Uh, people, even if you disagree uh, politically or religiously or however, we all. I saw a thing on on the internet the other day. There were three eggs in a carton. One was white. One was brown. And one was almost black. And they picked up the three eggs and broke them into a skillet. And when they broke those three eggs into the skillet, 
they were all three exactly the same. Hmm. And I think we need to know that um, we're all, we are all the same. We can, we can give blood transfusions across race lines. Uh, and contrary to what people thought back in the 60s, uh, I remember an episode of Archie Bunker. He didn't want, didn't want blood from a black person because <laughs> it would make him black, he felt. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't know whether you remember that one or not, but it was, a, it was quite a funny uh, thing for all of the family. I'm mm-hmm. talking about things that a lot of people, I guess, listening don't even remember. Uh, but I'm 78 years old, so I guess I have a right to <laughs> to reminisce about things that I think that's part of people not not knowing their history, uh, even if it's some kind of history like uh, movies or television programs. Or people need to know where we came from. And they need to know how we got here. Um, we're not going to destroy this world in 12 years. It's not going to happen. Uh, unless we destroy ourselves by getting into another civil war. Hmm. I had a kid in... Uh, I don't know. That's that's getting political. I don't want to get into political politics right now. That's not not a good thing to do. That's not where this is here. But uh, I listen to people talk, and uh, I hear what they say, uh, and I hear the vitriol that's in the voices. And frankly, I hear it more. From, my, from our leaders than I hear it from people on the streets. I belong to the Rotary Club here. I'm a Mason. I belong to the, the Masonic fraternity. Uh, I'm a storyteller. I'm, all, I'm involved in all these different groups. And people talk together. We work together. But then I listen to what's going on in, in Washington and, and in our state capitals, and I hear these, the people that we've elected to try to make us do things, you know, try to make things right, they, they just want to scream at each other. Hmm. They don't want us to, to succeed. Yeah, I think it's it's really beautiful. One of the works of a storyteller is really about creating community and connection, not just between ourselves and the audience, but uh, within the audience and forming this community and, and uh, bringing people together. So it is really a, a powerful thing. And then the organizations that you talk about that are, you know, the benevolent organizations are really about forming a community of very different people to, to do good in the world. So that's, that is, that's true. That's really beautiful. Um, uh, the social causes. I'm, I'm also We're, curious about... Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I, I, just, I was just continuing to talk about the same thing. Go ahead. <laughs> I, was, I was also curious about the healing power of storytelling. One of the things I teach and and i'm I'm really honored to teach it with young students now at one of the universities here in Fort Myers is storytelling is healing and and healing in the sense of of you know many different areas uh, you know body mind spirit all those levels integrating becoming whole again yeah and i uh when I got through working with uh, Doug putting these stories together. And I went up to Massachusetts. My wife and I took a, a, a little vacation, and we went up into the Northeast just to look around and have a vacation. And then for me to go to Doug's home, he has a recording studio in his home. 
and we went there to and I went there and recorded the entire CD in one day, and mm. it was amazing to me how good I felt after this was recorded. And we were sitting there listening to what we had put on tape, because back then we had tape. Uh, but we were listening to what we we had recorded, and I felt like a real weight was lifted off my shoulders. I don't know that I had felt that good in a long time. And Doug looked at me and he said, "Jim, you had PTSD." And I said, "Doug, I've never been in the military." He said, you don't have to be in the military. He said, things like that can happen to you anywhere. And he said, mm. telling the stories and getting it out, getting it out is, uh, is like getting poison out of a wound. Mm. And uh, I think he was probably right. I really enjoy now going to churches and schools and places when I, where I can tell the story of Tom Brown. And because, it, well, when I was at the last camp we had in, in uh, Florida in, at Camp Yale, Lake Yale, that mm, was the story first time camp. that I actually told, uh, yeah, the storytelling camp. That was actually the, last, the first time I ever really told most of the story out in the, uh, you know, in public. And I was asked to be the spotlight teller uh, at that camp. And so I told, oh, actually 30, 45 minutes of this story. After I was finished telling the story, I had gone down in front of the stage and there was a number of people standing down there, and they all wanted to ask questions and talk to them. And, just, and I heard behind me, Mr. Gregory, Mr. Gregory, Mr. Gregory. And I turned and looked, and this beautiful little black girl was coming down the aisle, just almost running. And she came up, and she threw her arms around my neck, and she says, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. And tears are just pouring down her face. She said, mm. I didn't know. I just didn't know. And she was about 16 or 17. And I thought to myself, if I can tell this story and I can get a young person to realize what went on and what it took to survive this, for both the people that were doing it and the people that were involved in learning, if I could get it across, then maybe we could get some understanding. And today I look around and I'm, I'm just, I just think I ought to be able to tell this story more places. And, and I'm giving away CDs frequently. I just, uh, people come in, uh, I just, you know, we'll give them a CD and say, you know, let me know if you, if you learn something. Hmm. Uh, I bet you I've given away a couple of hundred of them. Normally sell them for about $20 a piece. So I've donated quite a bit of money, I guess. Hmm. But uh, I, uh, and a lot of times if I'm going to go tell somewhere, I just ask the people, I say, you know, let me sell CC, CDs at the end of the program. Uh, I did shows in uh, outside of Philadelphia. I did a show outside of Philadelphia, and then did uh, a high school in Maryland, where I had where there were like five classes that the teachers wanted me to tell the stories in their classrooms, and uh, then I did uh, a thirty-minute. Uh, brief thing of the story uh, at a place called Bus Boys and Poets in Washington. Mm, I've been there. Uh -huh. 
it's uh, at uh, a bookstore restaurant <laughs> in Washington, D.C. And uh, I had... Uh, I had done a house concert for Megan Hicks um, outside of Philadelphia. And uh, I, the, the CDs that I sold while I was on this trip pretty much paid for my trip. Wow. Now, that's beautiful, uh, Jim. I, I really appreciate one that that healing that you got from just getting this story out of you and and I think it's not you know part of it is therapy about getting the story out of you but to be able to process that story into a place where it has meaning and impact and uh, is able to reach an audience um, it is the big part of that healing that you processed it out into a gift that you can give to other people and really heal others by opening hearts and opening minds and like that young girl that came up really grounding her into her own history and, and understanding um, uh, the, the people who came before her, you know, that, that opened this world up. And Somebody so has I, not told her. You know, somewhere, somewhere along the line, her, her education had been lacking because mm-hmm. she didn't know what happened in the 60s. Wow. And, I mean, maybe she had read a little bit about it in school. I don't know. But her words, I'm sorry, I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I didn't ask her, what was it you didn't know, you know? I kind of yeah. felt like asking, you know, asking, why didn't you know this? This is the story is is out there, you know. And uh, for me, no matter how much I could read about the story, I, I could still echo. I I didn't know because there's there's no way you can replace that first person account. So I thank you for for recording that and sharing that and continuing to share it and letting people know from that first person, what it was really like to live those times. And also the price well, I, that was paid those times. I realized at one point that I was, I was raised in the Methodist church, and basically everybody in my family was a Democrat, uh, registered Democrat from the time I was a little kid. All the people I knew were the same Hill. And I realized that at one point that the people that were trying to stop us from what we were doing were my home people. Hmm. And, it, and it came to a point where I was going, why? Why can't you see that we, that we need this? We, we can't keep fighting each other. It's not going to as long as it continues, and I, I don't know. I hear these things today, and I hear people talking today, and people talking about the, the, the first thing you can say if you disagree with somebody, either he's a racist or he's a Nazi. Boom. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean that that person is a racist. Or it doesn't make you a racist just because you disagree. Hmm. Uh, I've got a lot of friends up here in South Carolina or North Carolina now that uh, people from both political parties uh, and we get along. I don't know why it's so difficult for people to understand that we simply cannot afford to have a another civil war. Mm. We've got to learn to get along together. I think, who was the kid in California that got all of the young black man that got beaten up uh, 
and the, the, I think the most Rodney important King. thing he said, uh, yeah, Rodney King, and he said, uh, why can't we all just get along? Mm. <laughs> uh, we can disagree, but we don't have to be disagreeable. Mm. It's all right I to think, disagree. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say as a storyteller, too, just being able to listen to each other's stories uh, and not the, you know, not the preaching or the blaming or the, you know, the, the hate words or any of those things, but to listen to the stories of our common humanity of uh, who we are and what our life's like. Um, and to be open to the fact that I can listen to your story, I can see your humanity. doesn't mean I agree with you. It doesn't mean I'm going <laughs> to walk your road, but, right. um, but I can respect that you are you know, a person of experience, and this is your experience. Sometimes you walk the road because so, no, so other people won't have to. Hmm. And if, That's really... if we can learn from others' mistakes, you know, we either learn through firsthand experience or we learn through reading or we learn through the mistakes of others. If we can, if we can come to the point where we can listen to a story about what somebody else has experienced and think, Wow, I need to avoid that kind of experience. I need to make some changes in my life. If we could just reach that point where we learn from the mistakes of others, I think I, I think we'll a lot will will improve about the world that we live in. But no, we just have to scream at each other. <laughs> well, pendulums have to swing, so uh, let the healing begin. I guess they do. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, if a, what, it, what is it? If a clock stops, the pendulum stops. <clears throat> Maybe we can reach a happy medium. We don't. We don't all have to be of the same political ilk. Uh, we we fight against things that are wrong for our country. We we fought wars over politics. Uh, my father and two of his brothers died as a result of their their participation in World War II. Mm. My dad, my father died of a heart attack, and of his seventh heart attack at the age of 56. And two of his brothers, one was a, uh, one was a Marine and one was a, uh, was an Army Ranger. Both of them were wounded and because medicine wasn't good enough to remove a piece of shrapnel from one of my uncle's uh, chest where the, it was near his heart, he uh, it finally moved to his heart and killed him. We've lost so many young men as a result of these wars that we've been in. And we fight them over uh, differences of opinion on, uh, on government. Communism, socialism, uh, capitalism, whatever ism we come, with, come up with, we fight them over religion, differences in religion. Why? Religions, I think all religions teach, teach peace, don't they? Aren't the basis of most religions to treat others the way you would want to be treated? I don't know where we're going. I don't know where we're going either, but thank you for, you know, being part of the journey and also sharing your stories with the 
production of the CD as well as the performances that you continue to do with telling about uh, this time of the Freedom Schools and your CD, The, the Hanging of Tom Brown. Um, I do want to tell people out there that they can find you online at jimgregorystoryteller.com. That's Jim, J-I-M, Gregory, G-R-E-G-O-R-Y, storyteller.com. And also your website for the CD, hangingtombrown.com. And then by email, jimgregory2 at me.com. That's Jim. Gregory two at me dot com. That two is a numeral. The number two. Numeral. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any parting words? I know this is always a tough question. <laughs> well, Everyone I guess you know, have story will travel. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, have story will travel. Yes, I, I. You are one of the treasures with your stories and and having them ready for performance. I, I think that. Uh, uh, whoever can call you up and get you to where they are to tell your stories and, and or look online at Amazon to download the CD or, or buy the CD. Uh, at one point, true. when Tom was starting to get a little bit discouraged when he was learning, May said to him, Tom, do you know what a beaver dam is? Tom Will said, sure, I know what a beaver dam is. But he said, if you pull a large branch out of the dam, what happens to the dam? Tom says, it just floods away. And Billy told him, he said, well, Tom, you're like that branch. If you get registered to vote, you make it, a lot of people are going to make it. Hmm. Maybe all we have to do is just change one or two minds. Maybe we don't have to reach everybody, but enough to let people know that there's still hope in this world. Pull out one or two of those logs, the dam will just fall apart, and hope will flood the world. Thank you, Jim. And to everyone out there, it's Jim Gregory, storyteller in the oral tradition, talking about the freedom schools during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And thank you to everyone out there listening Please stay tuned for more people of passion and purpose doing interesting things, living the present moment. Find me online at livingthepresentmoment.com. Thank you, Dr. Ian. Appreciate it.